0: service, right service. And then breakfast. <laughs> well, and then breakfast. But we do? not get anybody to show up for this. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Should so should we do we really? maybe <coughs> like a early service, then go into the regular service, and then maybe to the brunch? Any idea. Yeah. Yeah, we can maybe keep that opening service to just like a half an hour or something. you want to put it lower? you want to make a main decision. Uh, let's, uh,
1: let's, uh, something in there. Good morning. Good morning.
0: Good morning. We'll do a couple of announcements here. Um, we, we all know everything from the fourth number down by heart. Uh, evening service scheduled again for tonight at six. Bring drinks, finger foods, and normal goodies to pass. Next Sunday is our communion service uh, after the morning worship. No dinner. No Good evening service next Sunday. Uh, Next item is not on there. We're discussing uh, Easter service. I'm not sure what, is it three weeks away? Anybody? The 17th? -hmm. Okay, the 17th of April. uh, We've decided to have an Easter sunrise service. It'll start at 9.30 in the morning uh, until 10.00. And we'll be able to gather ourselves back at 10.30 for a normal service to be followed by a brunch. So if anybody has any ideas on what they want to submit for a brunch, come and see me or Dale. And we will be heading up the brunch. Uh, so keep that in the back of your minds, and we'll go from there. Do we have any uh, announcements that I've missed? Any new news on anybody or anything going on? Anything? Okay. Our scripture for meditation this morning is uh, to be announced, and that announcement is Psalm 48, page 886 in the Pew Bible. To stand with us as we begin our morning in prayer. Dale, would you lead us, please?
1: Will you take your brown handle this morning <coughs> and turn to number 34? 34 in the brown. <coughs> Looking forward, do you have a reason for this one? What's that? Do you have a reason for this hymn this morning? Uh the words. All right. 425 in the brown. All right. It's always uh mess up with me about the personal time. Thank you.
0: scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 35, verses 1 through 15. That will be page 56. <clears throat> when you arrive at that, please stand with us. Jacob returns to Bethel. Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household, and to all who were with him. Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell upon the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is, Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar, and he called the place El-Bethel, because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak below Bethel. So it was named Alan bakoth After Jacob returned from Padan aram God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful. And increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come for you. And kings will come from your body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you. And I will give this land to your de- descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Jacob set up a stone pillar. And the place where God had talked with him and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had talked with him, Bethel. O righteous God, heavenly Savior, we pray that you would bless this reading of your holy and inspired scripture, that we nourish our souls, and we give honor and glory to you in all things. In the name of Christ.
1: <clears throat> Will you take your red kingdom, the Trinity, and turn to 310? 310 in the red.
2: Okay, we got it. Mm -hmm. Our scripture text this morning is Genesis thirty five. Our last study demonstrated that Jacob's move away from Laban, his father-in-law, and his trickery did not go very smoothly. He settled in Hivite territory where his daughter Dinah was violated by Shechem, son of Hamor, the ruler of that area. Jacob's sons were so enraged and grieved over Dinah's Humiliation that they devised a ruse in which the Hivites were convinced to be circumcised, to be welcomed into Jacob's family. But when they were recovering and in pain from the circumcision, Simeon and Levi, blood brothers to Dinah, through Leah, raided the village and killed all the men and then carried off everything as plunder, including the Hivite women and children. We learn that had Shechem simply asked for Dinah's hand in marriage without assaulting her, Jacob would likely have granted her request, and the outcome would have been radically different. But they didn't do that. That said, God had a conflict with the Canaanites of which the Hivites were part. Let me read it for you. This is back in Deuteronomy. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Gergeshites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, there they are, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you, and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Deuteronomy 7, the first four verses. So, As early as the annihilation of the Hivites in the town of Shechem in Jacob's day, we see the beginning of God ridding the country of these idolatrous tribes and their immoral practices. Today's study focuses on Jacob's relocation to Bethel and beyond. And as we come, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. Our Father, we thank you for the historical books, Genesis being one of them, and for the truths that we learn. Some of it's very grieving, but it does show that human nature has been the same for centuries. And so, Lord, uh, let us learn that it's only in Christ that we get a new nature, and that new nature enables us to live according to the law of God. The righteousness of Christ and not to the lusts of our own heart we thank you for that that transition is a transformation and I praise you for it and ask that you will bless all those here today if they could not come to know Christ may this be the day that you find them and draw them into your kingdom to the praise of your glory and for their good We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's study focuses on Jacob's relocation to Bethel and beyond. First thing we notice is that he breaks camp to move on. It's clear from our text that the town of Shechem is not where God wanted Jacob to be. He had moved there. He had bought a plot of ground there to set up camp without God's directives. And his stay at Shechem was horrendous for his daughter Dinah and his sons whose fury against the town folk made it impossible to establish cordial relationships. So we have in verse 1 God's directive Go up to Bethel, settle there, build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So this is a familiar territory. God says, you've been there before, go there again. Wouldn't you just love to have such clear directives from God concerning your future? None of us hears a voice from God telling us where to move, where to worship, where to settle, or even on such matters as whom to marry, what vocation to choose, what part of the country you're going to live, and so on. We don't get those things anymore. But we're not left in the dark concerning these things. We do have the illumination of God's Spirit using the scriptural principles to lead and direct us to the paths that we should take. As David reminds us. Let me read it for you. He's speaking to God about God. Your word, says David, is a lamp to my feet. And a light for my path. I have taken a oath and I have confirmed it. That I will follow your righteous laws. Psalm 119 verses 105 and 106. It's true, the scriptures are not a voice from heaven, but they are a word from heaven. And the beauty of the written word is its timeless message and the principles of life open for study and review that does not rely upon our faulty memories or worse, are sinful distortions. Inspiration seals the words of the book the way God intended them to read, and we find in them a stone of solidarity unmarred by time or wicked speculations concerning the will of God for our lives. This is a sure word. Peter says we have a sure word from God. There's also the added advantage that we do not have to wait for a word from God before we can act. We have his directive on all the areas of life, leaving no doubt as to what our course of action should be if we really want to know that. You know, with the patriarchs and the Old Testament saints, there were long periods of time that would pass with no voice from God. Think about that. Just silence. No prophecies, no directives. 400 years between the writing of the Old Testament and the writing of the New Testament. Well, there were people living in those 400 years, but there were no new revelations from God. So even God's people would take a wrong turn on the road now and again, as did Jacob when he went to Shechem. there's a downside in all this as well. Jesus said, From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Luke 12, verse 48. So you see how incumbent it is for us to be students of the Bible. We do have the complete revelation of God's history And his will for his people. Peter put it this way. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. That's quite a statement. God has given us in his word everything we need for life and godliness. He goes on, through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us very great and precious promises. So that through them, you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Second Peter 1, verse 3 and 4. That's number one. But then secondly, that said, note that Jacob is conscious that to approach the true God of heaven demands proper preparation. It will require that his household abandon their pagan idols and beliefs. Verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, by the way, he has hundreds of servants, Get rid of the foreign gods that you have with you. Purify yourselves. Change your clothes. Then come and let us go up to Bethel. Where I will build an altar to God. Verse 4. Here was their response. So they gave Jacob all their foreign gods. That they had and the rings in their ears. And Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then he set out and the terror of God fell upon the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. Brethren, there are four powerful lessons in this history. Number one, it is impossible for genuine worship of God to occur with one foot fixed in idolatry and the other in the house of God. That's so incongruous. It doesn't work. It must be as Jacob exhorted. Get rid of the foreign gods that you have with you. That's what you're going to have to do. Time and again, the nation of Israel did not understand this. And they did not abide by this. They refused to comply. In this way, they counted God simply as, well another alleged deity in their pantheon of many gods. So I didn't know that Israel was like, yeah, they were just a bunch of pagans as all the other nations. Well, how did they become the people of God? God just reached down and grabbed them and said, I'm going to make you the people of God. God can't do that. Yeah, he did do that, and he can do that. He has to start somewhere because all of the nations are pagan, all of them are idol worshippers. So he starts with Israel. Say, how how did he come to that conclusion? They must have been more righteous. No, they weren't. Well, they must have been more powerful. No, God says that they weren't. They were the least of the nations. It's God's grace. God just reached down and said, "You." I want you. Me? No, you don't want me. Yes, you. That's the way it went. To do this, people have to ignore the clear word of God concerning God's unique oneness. They stick with their idols. This is what the Lord says. I'm reading scripture. This is what the Lord says. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I'm the first. I'm the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him come and proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses? Is there any God besides me? No, there is no one, no other rock. I know not one, says God. All who make idols are nothing. And the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant. To their own shame, they are ignorant. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit him nothing? Nothing. He and his kind will be put to shame. Craftsmen are nothing. They're nothing but men. Let them all come together and and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and infamy. Isaiah 44, verses 6 and 5. God is setting it out really clear. Hey, there's only one God. It's me. You can do what you think is God. God. You can gather your men together and so forth, but you'll all be frustrated. That's in Isaiah 44. If we look at Isaiah 42, verse 18 and following, it reads, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Isaiah 42, verse 8. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and depart from me, there is no Savior. Boy, what a statement. Apart from me, there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I am not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days, I am He. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? The implication of all of this is, so you know, folks, you ought to rid yourself of those crazy little idols you have. Can't can't you see the difference between the God who is creator and master of the universe and your little statues? you're worshiping, carrying around, and so on. That's number one. Secondly, purify yourself, he says, and change your clothes, then come up to Bethel. What is that? that? Brethren, that's a call to repentance. Purify yourselves. Change your clothes. Come up to Bethel. Yes, get rid of your idols. But then also resolve not to slip back into your old sinful ways again. To us, the charge comes, change your clothes. What's that mean? For us, in the new covenant, it means be dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Peter put it this way, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. What? Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. 1 Peter 4, verse 3. You need to get rid of all that. And brethren, one's dress is indicative of the real person, not just The outward appearance. But of the deeds done from the heart. For example, in the Revelation, Jesus uh, Jesus addresses the various churches of the day. And it is revealed that his complaint against Sardis was this. Let me read it for you. Wake up. He's talking to Sardis. The church of Sardis. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember therefore what you have received and heard and obeyed and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Revelation 3 verse 2 and 3. Now observe his commendation also for those Sardinians whose accomplishments were godly and righteous. There were some like that. And he presses this. He says, yet you have a few in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out their name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. Revelation 3, verse 4 and 5. So there's rebuke for their apathy and indolence, but there's also praise for those that are following in the righteousness of Christ, dressed in white. And their dress, brethren, referred to their actions, their behavior, and unlike their contemporaries, many of whom were well, fellow members of the Church of Sardis, they did not enter into the sinful lifestyles of the world. So there was that mixture kind of going on. Now contrast that with what we find in Revelation seventeen verse four and eight, four and following. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. And there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things, and the filth of her adulteries. And this title was written on her forehead. Mystery Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes, and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Revelation 17, verse 3 and following. Now, brethren, we could hardly conceive of a more obnoxious description of a person's sinful deeds, covered with blasphemous names, golden cup filled with filthy adulteries, her overall demeanor drunk on the shed blood of the saints and those who bore testimony to Jesus. And what is it that depicts her with these wicked deeds? It is her dress of purple and scarlet, glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls all the opulence, all the sensuality of a mind that is sold over completely to the indulgence of the flesh. Drunk on the shed blood of the saints. when was Revelation written? About A.D. 95. What was going on in A.D. 95? The Colosseum of Rome slaughter of Christians for sport by the gladiators the lions so Jacob's charge is purify yourselves change your clothes those are two sides of the same coin they are like Joshua the priest in the vision Zechariah saw. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments upon you. And when Jacob told his household to change their clothes, he was charging them to purge the sinful behavior From their lives. Through repentance and faith. Repentance. And faith. They go together. No repentance. No true faith. You can't go on. Living like the devil. And say. I'm a child of God. There has to be a disallowing of all that sinful lifestyle. Now we do sin, we continue to sin, but it should be the occasional thing, not the ongoing lusts of a heart devoid of grace. Third lesson. The people's response. Yes, they turned over their idols to Jacob as he commanded. But notice verse 4 and following. Along with their idols, they handed over as well, the scripture says, the golden rings in their ears. I look at the text, particularly at Jacob's charge to the people. Guess what? I don't find any command for them to forfeit their jewelry. They did this on their own without Jacob prodding them to do so. This is the way true repentance works. The lessons I point out in our studies are simply intended to get you to think and to reason how in fact you yourself will repent and cleanse your life of the sinful garments that you wear understanding by onlookers but known to you as you look in the mirror of God's word. What do we know from the Bible about the connection between Jewelry and idolatry? Well, in their later history, Jacob's descendants were miraculously delivered from Egyptian bondage, and they set up camp at the foot of Mount Sinai. And while Moses delayed from coming down from the mountain where God was inscribing for him the ten words of the law, The Ten Commandments. The people were at the foot of the mountain prodding Aaron to create for them the visible idol to worship the golden calf. You didn't do it yet. They're prodding him to do it. So here's Aaron's response. Well, take off the gold earrings your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him, and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf. Exodus 32, verse 2 and following. Now a calf isn't a full size (coughs) cow, but it's about maybe the size of a German shepherd dog, something like that. You know how many earrings it would take to cast a golden calf, even of that size? In these early years, and to their credit, Jacob's household did not have to be commanded to give away their gold earrings along with their household idols. They just did it. They knew all too pointedly that their gold jewelry was but the raw material for future idolatry. So they chose to remove that temptation as part of their purification ritual to meet with the true God of heaven at Bethel. In our day, the world consistently and relentlessly flashes the glitter of gold and silver before us as the means of securing our future and protecting us from impending runaway inflation. The actor William Devane peddles gold and silver sales on TV, public channels, and so forth, ten or more times a day. And he closes his sale pitch asking, well, what's in your safe? See, that's where your security should be. Gold in your safe. There's nothing sinful about buying gold and silver as an investment any more than buying some other commodity like stocks or bonds or whatever. The sin comes in when these valuable minerals are viewed as our salvation, our Savior, to save us from financial ruin, I'm buying gold and silver. I'll tell you what. And fear plays a large part in the sales pitch. Fear causes rational people to become irrational and Christian people to forfeit their faith. Jacob's household had the good, faith-filled sense to realize that if they kept their jewelry, the day might come when they would be tempted to revert to their old idolatrous ways of melding and molding gold idols from the jewelry. Jesus warned us, Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It'll be better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Matthew 18, verse 7 and following. Now, I'm not actually advocating that we cut our eyes out or whatever, but he's talking about Repentance needs to be radical. It needs to be radical. That's the only true repentance that there is. You can't play at this game. You can't have one foot in the world and the other foot in heaven. So the idea is to repent and repent wholeheartedly. Lesson four is this. Verse four and following says, Jacob buried them, the idols and the earrings, under the oak at Shechem. Burying something is a figurative way of saying that we're through with it. We're through with it. is dead to us, and no longer has any part in our lives. Look, further down in the text, we read Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and was buried. Verse 8. Further still, down in the text, Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin, verse 19, and was buried on the way to Bethlehem. Last of all, Isaac, Jacob's father, died at the age of 180, verse 28, and he was buried by Jacob and Esau, verse 29. What this text is saying in regard to friends or relatives or family members, when we bury these we love, usually we erect a little marker, a stone pillar, Jacob placed over Rachel's tomb, verse 19, And we do that because we want to be able to go back on occasions and remember those we loved and reflect on what they meant to us while they were alive. But sometimes, as here, with the idol gods and the earrings of Jacob's household, the things buried are meant not to be remembered, but to be forgotten. forgotten and remain forever out of your consciousness we're going to bury these they are bad things they are not worth remembering they are things that led us astray and for which we have suffered much sorrow and much pain there is value in this kind of burying There is value in no marker to locate the burial site. Micah the prophet testified, You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob show mercy to Abraham as you have pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. Micah 7, verse 19 and 20. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. And then he adds their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. And where they have been forgiven, there's no longer any sacrifice for sins. Hebrews 10, verse 15 and following. This is a blessed burial. <laughs> Let me tell you, this is a blessed forgetfulness, by God bury them. I bury them and I don't remember them anymore. Wow. Now what are the results of Jacob's call to repentance? Verse 5 Terror of God fell upon the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. That's number one. When Simeon and Levi struck dead all the men of Shechem, Jacob expressed this fear to his sons. You have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and the Perizzites living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against us and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. You boys did this to me here and to our family. What were you thinking? Now in chapter 35, Jacob and his household are still in Shechem. They are heading for Bethel, but they didn't get there yet. They haven't even departed yet. And in a sense, they are sitting ducks. They're ripe for any attack of the Hivite federation that they might muster against them. And so to be sure, the Hivites have enough hurt and anguish from the slaughter of their men to launch an attack on Jacob and his household. So I ask the question... Why didn't the Hivites strike while they had opportunity? Why didn't they unite with the Perizzites as Jacob feared and with monumental force wipe Jacob and his household off the face of the earth? Answer, verse 5. The terror of God fell upon the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. Wow. Okay, another question. What was it that emboldened God to terrorize the Canaanites to leave Jacob and his household alone? If you answer, well, it was because Jacob and his household were the people of God, so God jumped in to rescue them. Wrong answer. Wrong answer. The Old Testament is replete with times when Israel was profoundly whipped or destroyed or carried off into captivity by pagan nations, and God used those nations to spank His people for disobedience, and He caused them to return to Him. (coughs) Well, what's the correct answer then? It was the repentance of God's people that activated the intervention of God on their behalf. They handed over their idols. They forfeited their gold earrings. They changed their clothes. They purified themselves in anticipation of worshiping God. And Jacob buried these symbols of their rebellion to God where no one would again find them and revive them and then they marched to Bethel repentance in us brethren always emboldens God to forgive us our sins and to draw us near to him let me read it for you David he's writing the Lord is close to the broken hearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Psalm thirty four verse eighteen nineteen. Or again, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God you will not despise. Psalm 51, verse 17. This God did for Jacob and his household when they turned from their idols to God alone. That was the first result. The second result was that Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Ever wonder where the name came from? Well, here's where it came from. We have learned in this study of a number of people whose names were changed by God. Abram, it means exalted father, was changed to Abraham, father of many nations. Sarai, princess, and heir waiting to rule, but not yet materialized. Her name was changed to Sarah, noble woman, a mother of nations and kings, issuing from her, Genesis 17, verse 16. Yet these name changes had more to do with Abraham and Sarah's destiny to become a great nation in fulfillment of the covenant God made with Abraham when he was yet in Ur. But Jacob's name change is unique. Verse 10, God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. The name Jacob did not refer to what he would become in terms of future blessing, as is the case of Abraham and Sarah. Rather, his name was indicative of what he was by nature. What's his name mean? What's Jacob mean? He means a deceiver, a liar, a swindler, a con man, a person in whom there... No one would <coughs> readily place their trust. How would you like to <laughs> go through life with the name liar? Rachel meeting Jacob at the well, reporting back to her father Laban, Father, I just met your sister's son, Mr. Liar, at the well, and, and he watered my sheep. Or what about Laban himself? deciding to hire Jacob to care for his sheep. Uh, uh, Mr. Swindler, tell me what your wages should be and I'll pay them. None of this is complimentary. But con artist was every bit a description of Jacob before God confronted him and changed him. But this changed man should not have to bear the name of his pagan and sinful past. Men may take a prove-it-to-me posture towards a person who claims to have been changed, but God needs no such thing as a probationary period. Some churches teach that to see if the change of heart is true. The God who forgave Jacob changed Jacob. That's the point. And the changed Jacob should not have to live the rest of his life known as the swindler. The new name identified Jacob's new nature. The name Israel means one who struggled with God and with men and prevailed. I'd like that name. That's a great name. One who struggled with God and with men and prevailed. Who won. Jacob held on to God despite his sinful past. He wrestled with God and with his own sinful self until God could do no less than bless a repentant heart. My grandma had a saying, and I'm sure it wasn't original with her. The saying was this. Well, you know... You can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Uh, Us kids are going what? What does that mean? She meant something like this. There are no soft silky fibers in a pig's ear. No. It's rough like a brillo pad so silky softness from coarseness <laughs> that's impossible ah but with god all things are possible that same grandma of mine was married to a confirmed drunker drunkard who spent his earnings on boozing with his body, buddies from the railroad, whom Grandma would often find sleeping on the living room sofa in the morning. And what did she do? She would whip up breakfasts and feed all of them and release them back outside. But her prayers for Grandpa were endless. And one day, on a marvelous day, God broke through his darkness and Grandpa became a forgiven and changed child of God who lived out his remaining years a thankful, loving, generous silk purse with no remembrance of his sow's ear beginning. Do you know that God can and will do the same for any repentant sinner? Amen. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that are labor and heavy laden. You're laden down with your sins. Cast your sins upon me. for I am gentle of heart and compassionate towards you. Thirdly, Israel was confirmed by God as the new recipient of the covenant blessing promised to Abraham and Isaac. Verse 11. God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you. Kings will come from your body. The land I give to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you and I will give you this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. And Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him. And he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured out oil on it. And Jacob called the place where God had talked with him. Bethel, House of God. May the Lord of Glory who descended his throne to save sinners talk to you today, to me today, and show himself as God almighty. Mighty to save all who will call upon him, all who repent of their sin coming to Him in faith and repentance. Our Lord, we thank You and praise You for Your truth. Why does the world need a Savior? Well, because the world is full of people that are sinners. Sinners need saviors. But there's only one Savior. Peter said that. There's only one name given to man among the given among men to us, and that is the, the Lord Jesus Christ. There aren't four saviors, 40 th- saviors. There aren't, aren't hundreds of saviors. There aren't thousands, as some of the pagan religions of the world hold to. There's one. And he says he's not going to share his glory with anybody else. So either come to Christ, or you don't come at all. And if you don't come at all, you won't be saved. Lord grant us that ability to come. Grant us the repentance of heart. Do we want to be changed? I want to be changed. I love this the fact that God can take a sinner, that he can take a sow's ear. And make a silk purse out of it. How wonderful. God is in the creative business. Of saving sinners. We bless thee today. And thank you today. For what you will do and have done. On behalf of your people. May you have the praise and the glory. We give you thanks. In Jesus name. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity, the red hymnal, 481. Jesus put it this way, I alone am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes before the Father except through me. Thousands of years have passed and still the world has not gotten that message. They're still looking at their little idols, those looking at the puny works that they offer to God. Their paltry things that they do, their prayers, their church offerings, whatever, and they're missing Christ. You miss Christ. You miss the Savior. Peter put it this way: There is none, no other name given un, unto men. Under heaven. That's pretty exhaustive claim, isn't it? No other name given to us under all of heaven. By which we must be saved. I'm just thankful God gave us a man, a name. A savior. There doesn't have to be a hundred or a thousand or whatever. Just needs to be one who is all efficacious in his ability to save and forgive. And how is that? Because he was the perfect person, the sinless one, God's son, dying on behalf of his people. That's what the cross is all about. He wasn't a victim. He gave of himself. He said, no man takes my life from me, but I give it up of my own accord. And I have authority to do that. And I've received that authority from my Father. Wow. Who gives us life like that? One who loves. Our Father, we pray that you will help us to see the beauty of Christ. We sang this hymn this morning and it's wonderful now. We need to turn our eyes upon Jesus. Look to Him. Not try to go around Him. But to submit to Him. Why would we do that? Well, because, among other things, the Scripture says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. Oh, oh, you mean this Savior is also the judge of the universe? Yes. I'd like to be at peace with that judge when I come before him. Not his enemy, but his friend. Not a foal, but a family member. Lord, let us reach out in faith. Grant us the faith to reach out to Jesus. Grant us the repentance to turn away from our sin, because he's not going to tolerate sin that's willful. And I pray that you will get the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember our service tonight at 6.